You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. The city's chief resilience officer, Josh Dambro, is helping to set the framework of a new COVID economic office in Honolulu. It'll be a hub for the public to turn to as funding for getting on the other side of this pandemic is doled out here on Oahu. We talked to Sambro yesterday afternoon about what the city administration hopes to accomplish. Every county is looking at this as how do we rebuild our economy in a way that works for communities and really, you know, we're able to sort of bounce forward rather than just bounce back. And so, yes, there's a state initiative, but that's at a state level. It's not for each island's population. So I think there's an attempt to build local capacity at the local governmental level to really make sure we're maximizing the federal money, the CARES money. There's funds that come to the county level as well as to the state and just make sure that we're working in collaboration. This is not a state endeavor. This is just for the island of Oahu. And it's something that really will expand the capacity of the city to efficiently get those federal dollars in and deploy them to the community as fast as possible. Right, because we have a spending deadline. So for the CARES money, there is, yeah. So the, the all of the CARES, that original first tranche of money that came from the federal government, it has to be spent out the door uh, by the end of the year, which is great because this, right now is when we you know, need assistance to small businesses and to individuals that are suffering in the economic downturn. And so there's no problem you know, from our perspective that, yes, we want to get these dollars out quickly. I think what we also need to look at, though, is if there's another federal bill, which we hope and expect that there will be, and I know our congressional delegation is working on that as diligently as they can, when those other additional dollars come, they aren't going to have the same end-of-year timeline. And so we want to make sure that we have an apparatus set up, an efficient delivery mechanism to accept those dollars, track them, make sure that we're complying with all the rules. There's a ton of rules around the federal dollars and make sure that, you know, we aren't putting ourselves in jeopardy of audit afterwards, but then also that we're working closely at the hip with the nonprofit providers on the ground, small business community. And, you know, to the extent that the state has their vision stood up then that we're aligning with that rather than competing with it. Okay, so it's basically setting systems in place so that we can efficiently process all this money. Yeah, so just to give you an idea, I mean, the number of people that we have in our in our current economic development office is about seven folks. If you look at the other counties, you know, Maui, Hawaii, Kauai, their economic development departments have anywhere between 18 and 22 staff. And so you know, the other counties in some ways have really been more advanced at really putting sort of a steering paddle in the water and deciding what kind of local economy do we want? How do we make sure we're supporting, you know, whether it's local agriculture or it's the technology sector with, you know, Nelha on the Big Island? I mean, they've really been more robust about steering their, their own local economy. And so here we've never had that capacity. And so this offers an opportunity to say for a county that has three times the population of all those other counties combined, we should probably have an economic development unit that has at least the same amount of capacity as as those. And so this is really a chance to start envisioning what the economy is and the direction we want to head on this island, as opposed to just sort of getting, you know, pushed by the winds and whatever happens at the state level or at the international level. And because, you know, your focus is sustainability, how are you looking at dealing with all the goals that we had with that plan? And then what needs to change going forward? It's one and the same. So we developed a resilience 
strategy and in, in partnership with the community here on our island over the last you know year year and a half and it really outlines here are the ways that people are they want this island to develop here's the places where they're concerned where they think we're vulnerable where they think we're we, we need more help and a lot of it I mean you're not going to be surprised but here is exactly the same places where these vulnerabilities have been exposed from the COVID crisis I mean it was identified in the resilience strategy that we're too dependent on tourism. We got too many eggs in that basket. You know, we need to diversify the economy. You know, we, we need to move forward on our strengths, which people identified as the energy sector, renewable energy. There's other areas like film and music and, you know, these places where what, what are the other things that we can be doing that aren't necessarily directly tied to tourism? And so our office was asked as the resilience office, to look into what are other places doing to make sure that they have a resilient, green, clean economy, and how have they developed that over time? And come to find out, you know, having a robust sort of office that works on those issues is really key and central. In fact, when you look at the resilient strategy, action number nine that came from the community was our economic development office should be essentially expanded to help develop these places where people really want to see more clean economic activity and diversify. So it's kind of one and the same. Obviously, every time that we develop, you know, a renewable energy project or we put another solar panel on a home, you know, that is cutting costs for local folks, which is even more important than ever now with the, with the COVID crisis and, and reduced spending. But it's also putting someone to work locally, right? You can't, you don't import solar energy, right? You actually put that infrastructure on your home or a site on island and somebody has to build that and that's providing a good paying job. And so those are the things that we really want to accelerate with the recovery is those local jobs that are actually cutting costs for local folks, but make our economy more stronger and diverse. Okay, now your office is specially funded. So our office is a bit of a hybrid, you know, obviously part of the city and county budget supports our office. We're, we've been able to leverage those public funds, those city and county funds with outside grant dollars for the last few years, and we expect to keep that going. We're sort of a hybrid model, and you can imagine the Office of Economic Revitalization having something similar for startup, right? We're looking at taking outside funds, federal funds, and making sure that they are building, you know, infrastructure and capacity on our island that are going to benefit our um, residents for years to come. So taking those outside dollars and making sure we're tapping every single one, not leaving one on the table, and then, you know, leveraging that with our limited public taxpayer dollars here on the island. Okay, but you don't see any merging of the two at some point? No, I think, you know, the, the mission of our office, as we if we were set out in charter by, um, you know, the, by the voters, was really to make sure that our city is pointed towards a sustainable, climate-resilient future. Now, that intersects with the economics all over the place, right? I mean, you want to make sure that you're building projects that are going to last for 100 years rather than just 10 if they're in a you know nearshore area, that you're planning for sea level rise, that you are making sure that higher wind speeds and hurricanes, all that kind of stuff, that you're not spending money that isn't going to last. But in terms of the economic development of the island, that's a different set of questions. And that's, as I mentioned, you know, we've had an office of uh, economic development. Really, the focus has for a long time has been focused on you know, sort of sister cities and ties with other places and making sure that having connections, fostering economic connectivity with other places, but not necessarily, you know, focused on how do we want to make sure that we've got resilient infrastructure here? How do we make sure that we've got a sustainable agriculture, you know, economy on our island that, you know, supports our institutions? How do we make sure that we're maximizing all of the innovation and technology around renewable energy that's happening? We've got 
tons of startups with our elemental accelerator now. There's probably a half a dozen different accelerators and incubators out there for small tech and business. How do we make sure that the city is supporting that and making sure that our entrepreneurs are contributing towards a clean economy? But then also, obviously, we would be interested in working with them in terms of resilience as well. So you're taking these little sparks and trying to start fires. Yeah, well, I mean, I think... You know, the sparks are out there all the time. Anytime there's an island community, there's always innovation going on, right? You, you, you can't, that's, that's where you see evolution happen fastest oftentimes is in islands where you've got, you know, small areas with people that are focused. So we actually wind up exporting entrepreneurs and innovators all the time. You know, they kick the tires on good ideas here, especially with our high energy costs. Um, we see new pioneering technology happen all the time. And then those folks oftentimes end up moving to the West Coast or to the continent to grow their business model. We want them to grow. We want them to take over the world, but we want them to maintain a footprint here and help us. So you've got a target date of July 1st. You're moving into the Blaisdell Center. So the idea is, is to make sure that we have a center, a, a recovery hub, where Small businesses and individuals can go to get the information they need and the assistance they need. Our call center, which has been up and running for since the beginning of COVID crisis, continues to take you know hundreds of calls a day. Oneawahoo.org is really the one place where people can go to to make sure they're getting the latest information um, for COVID. But we know that we need a physical space, and it might take a little while to get that stood up, but we do know that we need to have a place where, you know, job fairs can be had, where businesses and nonprofits and philanthropic folks who want to partner with the city know that they've got a place where they can go. So we will be looking at setting up the actual offices out there at the second floor in July and then really activating the space around economic recovery soon thereafter. And then you folks are looking to add staff. What types of uh, staffers do you need? Well, the first part is we're, we're looking to, you know, hire folks to basically be communicators, you know, whether it's the call center, which, you know, we pulled folks from a bunch of different departments to temporarily staff the call center. And now we realize that this is, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. We're going to be involved in this for a while. Every time we open up a new avenue of business. Those businesses have questions. So that's really been a, a, a resource center. And so making sure that we've got the staff to field those questions coming in from the community, um, making sure that we're educating businesses. We, we have so many good businesses that are trying to follow the rules and they're, you know, they call and they, they ask, can you walk me through these guidelines? Can you tell me how I need to set up my restaurant to make sure I'm in compliance? We've really done an amazing job. I think people have sacrificed a great deal. There's a spirit of community here that I think we haven't seen necessarily across the board in other places where you know, people are wearing their masks, trying to do the social distancing, and they're trying to set up their businesses in the right way. And we've got to have folks available to let them know how to do it and how to do it in the right way so that we can keep the economy open. I think that's really the key of this office is making sure that we have a really fragile opening going on right now. We got to make sure that the testing is available, that the education is available, that the guidelines are easy for folks to understand. And oftentimes you need a, a voice on the other end of the line, or you need a place where you can check in to do that. And that's what we're looking at standing up. We think it's really critical that people can find a live voice when they're ready to make the move to open, open their business back up or go back out into the community and how to do it right. 
That was Honolulu's Chief Resilience Officer, Josh Damro, talking about plans for an economic office. It will be physically located at the Neil Blazo Center with a July 1st opening targeted. The city's tapping Rick Keen as its director. He previously worked as Chief Financial Officer for Queens as well as CFO for the Bank of Hawaii. And now it's time to take a look across the globe. The World Health Organization says that there are signs of hope in the fight against the pandemic, while more work needs to be done to contain COVID-19. And scientists identify a mutation which is helping the virus spread. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the coronavirus global update on Wednesday the 17th of June. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway. Signs of hope in the fight against the pandemic, but more work to be done, so says the WHO. Scientists identify a mutation which is helping the virus spread. China partially seals off the capital Beijing to prevent a second wave. English Premier League football returns and how Iceland managed to stop its outbreak. The world now has more than 8 million confirmed cases of COVID-19, but the head of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, says there are reasons for optimism. Cases are still rapidly rising. However, there are green shoots of hope, which show that together, through global solidarity, humanity can overcome this pandemic. Dr Tedros said there'd been a big increase in capacity for testing, and he praised efforts to develop treatments and vaccines. But he said countries must continue to work on prevention measures. Scientists in Florida have found that a tiny genetic mutation in the coronavirus circulating in Europe and the US has significantly increased its ability to infect cells. Professor Hayan Che is one of the lead researchers at the Scripps Research Institute. This coronavirus, like other viruses, keep mutating, but its mutation rate is not as high as the flu virus. But this particular mutation was beneficial to the virus, so that stick around. And the team of scientists found that this mutation might have made virus more transmissible because this virus became predominant in Europe and the U.S. Professor Che does say that if the vaccines currently being developed are effective against COVID-19, they will also work against the mutant viruses. But the difficulties in beating COVID-19 have been highlighted in China, where the authorities have cancelled more than a 1,000 flights into and out of the capital, Beijing, to try to contain a fresh outbreak. Stephen MacDonald reports. Beijing is now inside a huge coronavirus prevention bubble. It's very difficult for anyone to leave the city. You need to have completed a virus test over the past seven days. But limited testing capacity is being diverted to high-risk groups who are all prohibited from departing under any circumstances. India's official COVID-19 death toll has gone up by more than 2,000 in a day to just under 12,000. The authorities say the sharp rise is due to updated figures from Mumbai and Delhi. Hospitals in both cities are reported to be overwhelmed by new infections. Meanwhile, Germany has urged its nationals to consider leaving India for their own safety. And France has told its citizens there to remain in their homes unless they're travelling to an airport to return to Europe. The world's most popular football league, the English Premiership, is restarting a hundred days after it was suspended because of the pandemic. There will be no crowds. Here's Laura Scott. Players will be able to hear one another and their managers better than ever before, but that will come at the cost of any atmosphere. In an effort to enhance the experience for the millions expected to be following from home, 
Celebration cameras will be used for players after goals and fans will be beamed into the ground on giant screens. With the eyes of the world watching the league's return, players will show unity both for the Black Lives Matter movement and for all those affected by coronavirus. Meanwhile, the European football authorities have announced that the Champions League quarterfinals, semi-finals and final will be played as a straight knockout tournament in Portugal in August. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has put the military in charge of quarantine facilities after two people who'd been allowed out early later tested positive for coronavirus. The women who'd flown in from Britain were the first cases in New Zealand for more than three weeks. Finally, Iceland is a definite success story in the fight against COVID-19. Not only did it manage to flatten the curve of infections, but it virtually eliminated the virus. It did so by taking action even before a single case was confirmed. A crack team was set up to track and trace from the first infection, a man who'd recently been skiing in Italy. The team was set up by police detective Ivor Palmerson, but he says using the police in this way may not work in other countries. People here in this country, they trust the organisations, like between 70 and 80% of the nation trusts the police here in Iceland. And they look at the uh, at this organisation as a serving police, not, uh, you know, empowering authorities or something like that. Police detective Ivo Palmerson. And that's the latest coronavirus global update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from PAR Hawaii, proud to support Hawaii Nature Center for 30 years and their nature adventure camps on Oahu and Maui. On now. Registration at hawaiinaturecenter.org. Tune in to HPR One Saturday night for Hawaii Public Radio presents Blue Note Virtually Live, performances from the Blue Note Hawaii stage. This week, it's Jake Shimabukuro, the local ukulele artist who's now recognized around the world for his talents. Plus, we'll hear about Jake's journey and current projects in a backstage interview. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR One or listen on your smart speaker. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from University Health Partners of Hawaii, the faculty practice of the John A. Burns School of Medicine. In-person and telemedicine services include family medicine, internal medicine, and behavioral health. UHPHawaii.org. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, it's Backyard Quiz Time. Unihoa, 
For today's Backyard Question, we are looking back into our retail history. We're looking back at one of Hawaii's oldest and largest chains, the Hackfeld Dry Goods Store, founded in 1849. Locally owned and operated by German immigrant Captain Heinrich Hackfeld, the store was rebranded in 1852, renamed B.F. Eilers when Hackfeld's nephew was named the new owner after Captain Hackfeld's retirement. Now, the store's name was changed a third time in 1918 and became Liberty House. Slowly over the next few decades, there would be five more locations on Oahu and several other stores built on the neighbor islands. The company even expanded to California, Nevada, and Washington in the 1970s. The economic landscape wasn't very rosy, and due to faltering sales, mainland stores began to close down, eventually all being sold by 1984. Through the process of leveraged buyouts and acquisitions, new owners, JMB Realty, acquired the Liberty House brand. And for today's quiz, uh, can you tell us the year the department store expanded to the Micronesian Mall in Guam? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you think you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. on The Long View, political analyst Dale Milner takes a deeper look at domestic violence cases during this period of isolation. Good morning, Neil. Good morning. You know, I have to say, when this COVID thing first happened, I think I came across an article that said divorces were up in China because of the whole isolation thing. And then I saw something similar for Korea. Yeah, and there's been some anecdotal evidence here, or at least a couple of divorce lawyers talking that it's up a little bit and they expect it to go up a little bit more. But that's still kind of calculated guesswork here. The bigger message is that intimate partner violence, which is what domestic abuse tends to be called uh, now, um, from what we know uh, from two studies in the United States since the COVID thing and what we know about around the world, we can say this, that in the United States, these uh, two studies show that domestic violence, intimate partner violence, definitely went up during the period from about mid-March to into April. It actually started going up uh, before most governments said you have to quarantine, because people started to self-quarantine early. It probably went up about 10 to 13 percent, more likely uh, among first-time intimate violence uh, situations, at least first-time reported intimate violence situations. Uh, And in one study, it said it started to drop in in April, but no one knows why, and that's where it ended. The other one didn't say that at all. So so on this basis, we can say it definitely increased in the United States. Uh, That seems to be following a pattern that's true in places around the world. And it's also very much like what you found in one way, very much like what you found in the aftermath of other uh, disasters. 
Hurricane Katrina, uh, later hurricanes, uh, Mount St. Helens eruption, that there was definitely an increase in uh, intimate partner violence. The one crucial difference here, and I'm listing these things now because it affects what we say about the rest of it, the one crucial difference in intimate partner violence situations right now is that isolation is the integral part of what you're supposed to do, right? I mean, we all are supposed to isolate, cut ourselves off from other people. And, you know, those of us who are uh, fortunate enough not to be in a violent situation, it's hard for us. But in a situation where you have uh, uh, this kind of domestic violence, you have to remember that isolation and control are very much parts of the weapons that an abuser uses. That is, to control a person, you cut that person off from other situations. So in that way, the potential for inner, inner, uh, intimate partner violence actually increases in, in this situation. And I think reaching out locally to the domestic violence center, I think they're you know seeing the same type of thing happen here. Well, I imagine the only thing that I've seen reported in the newspapers here is that for a roughly the same period that we're talking about, mid-March to mid-April, there was about the same number of cases last year as there were this year. Um, I, that's not very reliable data, I think, but also the police department did, HPD, did assign additional resources at least one other detective in anticipation of it in, in, to increase. So it's not, I mean, it's sad, but it's not surprising because the kinds of things that are associated with uh, this kind of violence are very much uh, the situation here. Right, you've got these stressors yeah. you know, that trigger, you know, you these bet. outbursts. Yeah, you've got uh, anxiety, economic anxiety. Uh, you have... Um, the fact that drinking may increase. You have the fact that people are not used to being around one another. There's even some evidence about male anger increasing, uh, uh, in, uh, particularly in economic insecurity times. So you do have, yes, you definitely do have all of those stressors. We don't know the kind of internal dynamics here. I mean, if you want to talk like a social scientist for a second, these earlier studies are really much more about overall data um, and, you know, incidents. But there is certainly a good reason to suspect that all of these stressors, including, of course, the, the, uh, the natural disaster-related stressors, all make it more likely that there would be an increase in domestic violence. And in some ways, you know, I was kind of surprised that it didn't go up more. Well, that's not to say that, you know, it isn't happening, but maybe the, the numbers, the cases that are reported haven't yeah, been that, logged. Yeah, that's exactly right, uh, that there, there, could be, uh, there could be more. Now, these the studies that use the statistics use all kinds of interesting uh, gizmos and tricks uh, you know, you can trace movement, cell phone movement, and all those sorts of things and ch check it against police records. But, yes, you always have the problem in any kind of criminal situation that it's, there, there is a difference between the number of people who report and the number of people who experience it. I think these studies assume that that's not going to change very much 
compared to what it used to be like, but we don't know for sure. Well, I know with this pandemic, we've seen, uh, you know, reports about how alcohol sales have gone up and gun yeah. sales have gun gone sales up. Gun sales have gone up, yeah, and that's another thing, that gun sales go up in these kinds of situations. And so you, again, have those kinds of stressors that are around that make it more likely. Um, you know, you can create your own scenario about people getting angry in a closed space, drinking, uh, you know, a fair amount and having the opportunity for a weapon. The interesting thing is that most other crime rates have dropped. The rates for other crimes have tended to drop around the country. But this one has gone up, and you can kind of understand why there's the difference. A lot of those other kinds of crimes involve the opportunities to be out. Not all of them, because homicide is very much a part of, can be very much a part of what's happening inside your own home. But still a lot of other crimes, robbery, traffic offenses, anything else depends upon you being out and about. That's not what IPV depends on. IPV increases increases because you have more of these stress situations. Yeah, and I think with like property crimes, right? If everybody's at home. Yeah, everybody's <laughs> at home. That's right. You don't have to rely on one person keeping watch or, you know, or the the alarm system. Yeah. Well, I, I know, I think it was a Psychology Today uh, r- report that talked about, you know, there are fewer people out on the street. But in my neighborhood, I don't know about that. There, <laughs> yeah. It seems well, like there's four times as many people out walking around. Well, that's right. I mean, the, the, it depends what you, what you mean uh, by, yeah, there's a lot of people, even compliers, you know, walking around. You know, what's interesting, of course, and kind of scary, um, we're living in this sort of natural laboratory experiment because it's constantly fluid. What we found over between March and April may change pretty much between, um, let's say, between April and the end of June as people begin to go out and about more. That may affect everything that I've, I've talked about here. But I think the, the bottom line is that, that, there, that it's not surprising under the circumstances that there has been an increase. And it's also disappointing but not surprising that it cost it, – it caught most governments off guard in an attempt to try to figure out how to respond to this virtually unprecedented situation a lot of people uh, a lot of government officials were just clueless about what you have to do in order to handle this no one really i shouldn't say no one it wasn't much thinking to consider the fact that the kind of social infrastructure that people rely on uh, uh, people who are abused as well as anything else uh, the outside social infrastructure for reporting, for example, schools, or for just kinds of respite, libraries, church, they, they were really cut off. And once they're cut off, and it just increases all this kind of isolation. And, and it, there wasn't much thought given to that kind of thing. That seems in the, in the, you know, in the battle for do we have enough ventilators, are we going to have to build temporary hospitals, that one kind of got lost, uh, but it turns out that that's another factor. Yeah, and I know that, uh, you know, there's uh, talk, too, about how, you know, this uh, impact with the isolation affects, you know, child abuse when you're at home. Because yes. if the kids aren't at school, the teachers, you know, would normally, you know, notice things and could, could uh, you know, investigate further and report. But, well, you know, not, it's a whole not other only thing. could they, they were mandated to. Yeah. So you had... You know, you had those sorts of things. There is some interesting, um, a little bit of interesting research about that thing, uh, 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 about in New York, that 
some of the um, some families, African American families especially, uh, felt more comfortable now because they're constantly getting hassled by the child services in New York coming in the house and inspecting and all those sorts of things. These are, and and uh, how worried they were constantly about. Uh, you know about government stepping in, and, and now with the absence of that, they feel more relieved. Now, before people listening to this dismiss that, remember that that's a that's the similar kind of argument that's made in regard to the police. That the police treat us African Americans different, and it's worth at least thinking about the analogy here about the fact that child services. Uh, is can also be disproportionately unfair in certain directions. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens though over uh, you know the next uh, month or so. Oh yeah, and I, I you know, and I hope we watch it uh, more closely here. I think we've been kind of lucky because the problem, the, the the general issue here has been less limited. But I think yeah, um, and the irony may be that. The, that we don't get an increase because people begin to start getting out more, but that instead what we see is an increase in the, in, in the incidence of, the, of COVID. Yeah. All right. Well, stay safe. Neil. You too. Stay well. Stay safe. <laughs> All right. And take care. Okay. Sir, All right. Bye. We'll check back later. We have been chatting with Neil Milner, retired professor of political science and a contributing analyst of our segment, The Long View. For links to the studies on domestic violence, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Martin Shaw, author of Courting the Wild Twin. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about seeking the exiled wild twin located deep inside and outside us. Sunday morning at 11. Bad information from the Honolulu Police Department. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Anita Hofschneider is on the line today. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you and a couple of your uh, colleagues there at uh, Civil Beat started looking into some of their records, HPD records. Yes. So as I'm sure everybody's aware, you know, the killing of George Floyd, a um, black man in Minneapolis by a police officer has just sparked all sorts of protests nationally, including here in Hawaii. And so after that, we were looking at our own coverage and thinking, what, what should we be covering about what's happening here in Hawaii? And, you know, over the years, 
my colleagues, both Yuhyan and Nick, have been our criminal justice reporters, and they've written about different police shootings when they've happened, as well as um, done some investigative work and written about different wrongful death settlements. But we thought, well, why don't we just do a story that writes about how many people have died in Honolulu over the past 10 years? Um, but that was actually a lot harder than we thought it would be. And in what way? Well, so the first thing I did was I decided to pull the use of force reports. And so every year, HPD publishes these use of force reports, which are public records. They're not on their website, but you can ask for them. And they talk about all the different ways in which officers use force. So this can range from, you know, using pepper spray to using a baton to a physical confrontation that's just a general confrontation to actually killing someone. So it's really across the map. And so there, there are no names in this report in terms of the people killed, but they just have a, a number and the table near the end that says, you know, three examples of lethal force that year or zero. Um, and so I thought, hey, I'll just pull these reports, which we had from 2010 to 2018, and count up the number. But in the process of this, I was working with Yuhyun, and she noticed, oh, my gosh, there are several years in which it says there are zero deaths. But in fact, we know of other deaths because there were lawsuits, um, they were publicized in other ways, and, you know, it just wasn't adding up. And so we ended up going through media reports and also reaching out to the prosecutor's office and getting more information about how many people actually died in those years. And so we found that since 2010, um, Honolulu police officers have killed at least 29 people, and that's 11 more that cases than are than the department has reported in these use of force reports. I found that really surprising and also surprising that they didn't just list the names uh, on those reports. Yeah, that's part that we still haven't quite figured out. You know, the names of the officers are are kept secret, and we've written a lot about that. And the department has said their policy is not to release these officers' names unless they've been arrested, and there hasn't been any arrests in recent history. Um, but in terms of the names of the deceased, you know, we, we were asked, actually asking about that. And when HPD didn't give it to us, we thought, well, I guess we just have to search through media reports. But we found a lot more names of people who died than were listed in these official reports. And the significance of it is that these use of force reports are used to help inform police training. So every year, um, you know, the people who are conducting police training can look at them and see how cops used force, and that can kind of guide what they teach. But in fact, it looks like every year they've been looking at problematic reports. And that was one thing that we were um, surprised Chief Ballard um, acknowledged. She did say that, that she had looked at the reports and she was, um, you know, she recognized that they were inaccurate. And so they will be delaying the release of the 2019 report um, and ensuring that it will be accurate. That's well, what she said. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, very telling that we, we don't have good information. We've got poor record keeping. Definitely. And, you know, it's it's really important because, you know, we're looking at these and these are just numbers. But, you know, every person who died was somebody who had a story. And so in some cases, you know, they we don't know. We didn't do an analysis about whether or not these were justified or unjustified. We just looked at, you know, how much, um, you know, how many happened. But it's hard to right, right now in this moment when policymakers are thinking about what kind of reform should they be adopting and and, you know, in what ways are as our Honolulu police using force, it's hard to, you know, even make decisions about that and figure out what's justified and unjustified if you don't even know how many people were killed. Right. We need good information. We need the facts. 
Yes, definitely. And, you know, that's something we hope to continue to dig for, but we were surprised that it was this difficult to find this uh, information that when we talked to experts in, uh, nationally and other places, they were saying, you know, if you have only six, seven, eight, you know, the most of it in the deaths in any one year was eight, you know, they were saying, you know, that shouldn't be that hard to keep track of. All right. Well, thanks so much, Anita. Thank you for having me. That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's Reality Check. To read the stories around policing issues, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. This is Jose Fajardo, president and general manager of HPR. I'd like to thank everyone who contributed to our recent summer pledge drive. HPR has been here for you throughout all the change and uncertainty of the recent months, and so many of you stepped up to be there for us. Your generous support helps keep this essential public service strong. If you haven't yet made a contribution, it's not too late. Just go to hawaiipublicradio.org, and thanks. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Gourmet Events Hawaii, now offering its cow-cow box with food for up to eight meals, including chef-made dishes and fresh produce, curbside pickup or delivery island-wide. Cowcowboxnow.com. Earlier in the show, we told you about the Hawaii-based retail store BF Eilers, formerly known as Heckfeld Dry Goods Store, eventually named Liberty House. Founded in 1849 by German immigrant Captain Heinrich Hackfeld, the store focused on stocking its shelves with locally made products, primarily clothing. And, and although it took a while to get going, a second location opened in 1937 and spawned five more stores, including a few on the neighbor islands. The chain expanded to California, Nevada, and Washington during the 1970s. In 1988, the parent company of Liberty House was acquired by Chicago-based JMB Realty. It was under this new ownership that Guam's Micronesia Mall welcomed Liberty House in 1994. That was the answer we were looking for, but nobody got it. That's today's quiz. This morning, HPR's Ashley Mizuo joins us to talk more about distance learning and, in particular, how it's worked for uh, ESL students, English language learners. Good morning, Ashley. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so you've been kind of poking around with this distance learning for several months now. So what's the what's the snapshot for ESL students? Yeah, so for English language learner students, um, we've been warned by some education advocates and some studies that you know, they're pretty vulnerable and would probably be worst um, hit by the shift to distance learning. And so I decided to, you know, kind of look into how that went um, over the past couple of months. Um, 17% of DOE students are active ELL learners or have been in the ELL program. You know, video conferencing and also physical copy worksheets. Pretty much it sounded like the video discussion, teachers preferred that because they said um, it's easier for the kids to be able to see and interact with each other. Um, but a lot of the kids ended up opting for the physical copy worksheets. Akiko Giambu Chell. Luca is the ELL coordinator at Barrington, and I spoke with her, and she says um, it takes a lot more than just verbal communication to teach children English, and those resources were a lot harder to provide during distance learning. 
that they have to look at the facial expressions, tones, and the gestures, and maybe acting out, experiencing the real thing, and watching the models. We always constantly use to provide language resources, but during distance learning, we couldn't quite provide all of them. Basically, what she was emphasizing is just, you know, it's not the same um, level of teaching to be able to do it over distance learning compared to the kind of teaching to be able to do in person. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wonder if, you know, there are other obstacles for this particular group, you know, that the general population doesn't face. Right, and one of the biggest barriers was pretty much technology. I know that we've talked here about internet access for students, but distance learning was hardest on the newcomer students, the ones who moved to Hawaii from a different country about three years or less. Most newcomers are coming from the Marshall Islands and Chuuk, uh, where the students weren't really using these kinds of technologies like laptops or tablets. Here's one of the students I spoke with. His name is Ben Stetik. He's a rising senior at Farrington, and he moved to Hawaii about three and a half years ago. He said the technology has really been challenging. When you first started, it, it was kind of hard. Some people would say, oh, our generation know how to work technology. For me, I don't even know how to work technology because back home in Chuk, Micronesia, we don't really have technology. We, we only use the old version, textbook, paper, pen. Akiko at the ELL Coordinator Farrington had said that um, she had wished that before uh, we had gone into distance learning, they had focused more on computer literacy. You know, they focused a lot of time teaching the language, um, but they hadn't anticipated the physical working of the laptops being an issue. It's she, interesting because, you know, there is that digital divide, and, right. and you need those tools in this day and age to really compete. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, they surveyed the kids right before they went into distance learning um, or over that spring break period when they thought they might be coming back. Um, and she said that 25% of the students in the ELL program didn't have a laptop or internet access. So DOE provided the Chromebooks for those students, but many of them still opted out of using it because they just didn't know how or they didn't have internet access or if they just didn't have a quiet place to learn, like there was too much noise going around, so it wasn't really easy to, you know, use the video conferencing or voice conferencing. I spoke with one of the teachers, her name is Ellie Cantar, also at Farrington, um, and she said that a lot of the students had added stresses at home um, due to COVID, which made it more difficult to distance learn for a lot of them. One thing that I found with my own students is I've just had to become really accessible outside of school hours. I have a lot of students that the situation has brought about extra responsibilities at home. They're either caring for siblings, cousins, nieces, and nephews during the day because I work with high schoolers, or they've taken on extra responsibilities helping out adult family members who might be immunocompromised. You know, Ben Setik, the student I spoke with, he's been helping out um, in his community with Kukua's Kalihi Valley um, for his immunocompromised aunt. She was really active in the community group and they would, you know, pass out goods to the people in the community that needed it or resources for families. But 
she can't be as active, so Ben's kind of stepped in. Um, he said since distance learning started, he's been volunteering there every single day. And on top of that, many students who are ELL, their families rely on them for translating. I also spoke with most recent graduate from Farrington. She graduated this past June, and she said that she completed the ELL program in the eighth grade, and it was really important. Those ELL classes helped her really learn how to speak English and become very good at it very quick. Um, and she said she uses those skills to translate for her parents and family members. Like when they go to doctor's appointments, she'll translate for her dad. And I mean, it just imagine if she didn't have that ability to speak English because her ELL classes were distance, like what happens to her and to her family, right? So what's the solution? The teachers have said that some in-person summer school is a really good start, um, and we're seeing some of that. And the summer school has been kind of reserved for students with highest need, which would include ELL students, um, which is nice. But Gambaluka, she says that many might have to repeat the year because of the language loss over the summer, plus the distance learning loss. She's not really anticipating the students to have retained a lot of information. But on top of that, DOE is still trying to figure out why Chukis and Marshallese-speaking students have such lower outcomes compared to other ELL students. They had run this whole report um, that kind of showed that although ELL students who finish the program before high school have higher and better outcomes like graduation times and going to college than students who had never been in the program, the divide between the Chukis and Marshallese students compared to the rest of the language students was very stark. So um, one of the KCC professors I spoke with who works closely with ELL teachers says it might be because the public school system here just isn't super equipped to working with the cultural divides with Chukis and Marshallese students, especially when it comes to attendance and time management. I know the DOE sent a team to the Marshall Islands in spring 2019 to kind of better understand the education structure and the culture. And from that trip, they've kind of wanted to encourage schools to set up more transition centers for new families coming to Hawaii to provide assistance to them for language, cultural, and especially health care when it comes to them moving to Hawaii. And then, you know, just to clarify, I know uh, in in my day, they were referring to this program as the English as a Second Language ESL, but this is ELL, English Language Learners. They've tried to change the name of the program itself. They thought that ESL kind of had a negative connotation to the home language, and they really are trying, a lot of language advocates have been trying really hard to um, emphasize the value of preserving the first the home language and adding on English to kind of like enhance their skills as opposed to it being like your home language can no longer be spoken and like only speak English, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. All right. Good point. Thanks so much, Ashley. Thank you for having me. We have been talking to HPR's Ashley Mizuo about how distance learning has impacted students whose first language is not English. We have to go now, but up tomorrow we plan to hear about recovery efforts from Big Island Mayor Harry Kim as travel restrictions uh, ease this week for inter-island travel. Do you plan to travel soon? Staycations will help our struggling small businesses and help us plan for the day. The 14-day quarantine is lifted for all travel. Share your feedback. Call our talkback line, 792-8217. Find our archive shows online. Uh, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. See you back tomorrow for more of the conversation.